1: And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but man, you don't want to miss tonight's show. We got a, We got something really special lined up for everyone tonight. As always, I am joined by Genevieve. Genevieve, how are you doing on this fine Sunday evening?
0: I'm doing very well and glad that on this Sunday evening, the sun is actually out as usual. Well, actually not so usual recently in LA, but... Being British, obviously, that's the first thing I talk about.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we are a bit spoiled by the weather out here, I will admit. Uh, We hope everyone is having a great time and enjoying their weekend. If you're tuning in through the Ustream or the TuneIn app or the Live Me app, we just want to send a big hello to everyone. And uh, buckle up, folks, we have a really fun show coming up. Before we begin, I just want to send a big, big shout out to uh, Jennifer Stein, director of the uh, Travis documentary who facilitated tonight's interview. She is organizing the 49th annual MUFON Symposium that will be taking place July 27th through the 29th in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So uh, if you're going to be out there around that time, definitely go check it out. They're going to have a great list of speakers, including Travis Walton, Ted Peters, Dr. Bob Wood, and of course, our guest tonight, Kathy Martin, who I will let Genevieve, have the honors of introducing to our listeners tonight. Genevieve?
0: All right. This is mainly taken from Kathleen-Marden.com. Kathleen Kathleen is a leading researcher of contact with non-human intelligence, an author and a lecturer. Educational background in the social sciences has shaped her interest in scientific ufology. Extensive research and investigation into alien abduction has convinced her that some abductions are indeed real. Her interest in UFOs dates back to September 20th, 1961, when her aunt, Betty Hill, phoned her childhood home to report that she and Barney had encountered a flying saucer in New Hampshire's White Mountains. A primary witness to the evidence of the UFO encounter and the aftermath, Kathleen has intimate knowledge of the Hill's biographical histories, investigation files, and scientific interest in their sensational experience. This led to a journey of exploration leaving no stone unturned to find answers through scholarly work, investigation, and social research. She's recognized as the world's leading expert on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. She's associated with the mutual UFO network, MUFON for those in the know, as its Director of Experiencer Research and also the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, and that's as an advisory board member and consultant to its research subcommittee. She was also the recipient of MUFON's 2012 Excellence in Ufology Award. She makes it clear that the opinions expressed by her are her own, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the organizations of which she is affiliated with. Um, Sorry, I think I said one too many words there. (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen is the author of five books. Three were co-written with nuclear physicist and ufologist Stanton Freeman, who we've had the pleasure of interviewing before. And her new book, The Experiences Handbook, will be released in July. In addition to this, her essays have been published in other books, and in 2012, she spearheaded an extensive research project with Denise Stoner to identify little-known commonalities among experiences. Now, this is really interesting. Do check out those um, lectures online. But more recently, she has completed her work on MUFON's Experiencer Survey, a comprehensive study on experiences, with Dr. Don C. Donderry. Her articles have been published in various magazines and on multiple websites. Kathleen has also given expert testimony on the Discovery, History, H2, National Geographic and Destination America channels, as well as on several other documentaries and news shows. He's a frequent guest on radio programs, such as ours, and has lectured internationally. So with that, my gosh, I'm extremely um, happy and proud to be able to welcome Kathleen Martin onto West of the Rockies.
1: Kathleen, can you hear us okay?
0: Yes, I can.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. Like I said at the top of the show, the Betty and Barney Hill case growing up, it was right up there with the Travis Walton case and the Whitley Striever experiences. Before we begin, I do want to start out with this question. Back in the uh, 80s and 90s, I do remember that the term that was used most commonly for this type of experience was called alien abduction but i know that you and and many people nowadays are choosing to use the term experiencer for somebody that has this type of uh, you know experience sorry to sound redundant can you tell me what is the difference in those terms and why why are people leaning more towards the use of the term experiencer
2: well the word abduction implies that it is a negative experience that the individual is having this experience against their will and uh, that it is probably traumatic. This is not true of everybody. We have discovered that uh, many individuals are not having traumatic experiences. There are all sorts of experiences taking place, including non-physical entities uh, whom can be felt and whom can be heard and uh, can give downloads of information to individuals, people who uh, are contactees, who are having uh, contact that they desire, and uh, meeting with these non-human entities who are highly advanced and very spiritual, as well as those who are having uh, highly negative experiences such as my lab abductions and your classic type of abduction. It was interesting. I asked that question on MUFON's experience or survey. The question was, if you could end your experiences today, would you? And 71% said no, they would not end their experiences. So it's important that we... Differentiate between the different types of experiences that people have. In my opinion,
1: obviously, this phenomenon hit uh, very close to home for you. You are the niece of uh, Betty and Barney Hill, whose case just became like a worldwide news. Can you tell us, in your own words, just a, a little bit of what happened to your uncle and your aunt? And. How did you process the information the first time you heard it? I, I imagined you were quite young.
2: I was 13 years old when my mother received a phone call from my aunt Betty Hill. And I was home from school in the afternoon. And Betty told my mother that she and Barney had uh, had a close encounter with a UFO. Well, she used the word flying saucer actually. The night before, when she and Barney were returning home from a brief vacation to Niagara Falls, they spent the night there, and then they went on to Ontario and spent another night in Ontario. They were going to spend another night in Montreal, but they ended up deciding to drive home during the night, anticipating that they would arrive home at about 2 o'clock in the morning. They lived on New Hampshire's seacoast. So they were driving along, everything was going well, it was 10 o'clock at night when they finished their last snack in northern New Hampshire uh, before they uh, finished their drive home, and uh, as they were driving south, Betty spotted a new light in the sky, and My family was very interested in the space program and in satellites, and so she continued to watch it, wondering if it was a satellite. And as she watched it, it grew larger and larger in the sky and seemed to be following along beside Betty and Barney. They ended up stopping the car in uh, an area of New Hampshire called Mount Cleveland. There was a picnic area there. It was just south of Twin Mountain and north of Franconia Notch. And they got out, they looked at this thing with binoculars, attempting to identify what it was, and uh, they couldn't. It, It seemed unusual. Barney wanted to say that it was a plane. He didn't believe that UFOs could possibly be real. But he kept shaking his head and just was perplexed by the movement of this craft that Uh, came back toward him very rapidly he got back into the car drove south through Franconia notch and as it came lower over Cannon Mountain they stopped the car again by the old man of the mountain now the old man's profile was 48 feet from forehead to chin it was a granite profile that had the appearance of a man's profile And they could see that that craft was one and a half to two times the length of the old man's profile and appeared to be uh, rotating and appeared to be lighted on one side. So uh, they got back into the car, uh, driving south. Barney wanted to get home. He didn't want to spend a lot of time looking at this thing. And as they were uh, driving through Franconia Notch, the craft started bouncing back and forth in the sky. This was very perplexing. They left Franconia notch and came into a tourist area called Lincoln, uh, where there were motels and theme parks and that sort of thing. Uh, and at this point, the craft surged ahead and quickly descended to within about 100 feet of their car forcing Barney to stop the car in the middle of the road. He opened the door, he got out, he'd left the car running, and he left uh, the interior light on. He looked up at this craft. Betty was looking up at it from the passenger's window. And as he was looking at this, he could see that it was dish-shaped, and it had a row of windows on the forward edge with blue-white lighting. The craft then moved to an adjacent field and descended a little bit lower. And Barney followed it into that field with his binoculars, looking up at it. Through his binoculars, he could see between 8 and 11 figures dressed in shiny black uniforms who were looking down at him. He said that they uh, appeared to be about the size of a pencil from his point of view meaning that uh, where he was standing, certainly they were taller than that, but that was from his perspective. And uh, all of a sudden, all except for one of these figures moved away from this row of windows to a panel. And when they went to the panel, their arms went up. He could see them down to their knees at that point. And little red lights began to come out of the sides of this craft on little tiny wings. And something started to drop down from the bottom of the craft as it tilted a little bit toward Barney. There was one in the window who was staring at him. And Barney became very frightened that there was a plan, and that plan was for him. He feared that he would be captured, quote, like a bug in a net, close quote. He ran back to the vehicle, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. He went speeding down the highway, but as he approached the car, he noticed that the craft was moving again in his direction. He told Betty to roll down her window. She did. She looked up. She did not see the craft. She was expecting to see lights. All she saw was blackness, even though it was uh, nearly a full moon. It was about three quarters full. It was a bright, light night. So she rolled the window back up and almost immediately she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the vehicle. It caused a tingling sensation to pass through their bodies, like electrical tingling. It caused the car to vibrate. And the next thing they knew, if only a moment had passed, they were 35 miles down the highway. They recalled a, a roadblock that They had a scene somewhere along the way. They didn't know where or when it occurred. They recalled observing a fiery orb sitting on the ground. Again, they didn't know where or when it occurred. They heard a second series of buzzing sounds. And Barney uh, stopped the car in the road again. He moved it from side to side. He tried to make that buzzing sound. He wasn't able to do so. The buzzing sound stopped. He and Betty began to speak again to one another, and they were looking for a police officer. They were looking for a restaurant where they could get a cup of coffee. Nothing was open. They couldn't find a police officer. They drove on to their home in Portsmouth, expecting it to be about 2 o'clock in the morning. But by the time they arrived, dawn was streaking the sky. It was 5 o'clock a.m., and... They found puzzling marks and physical evidence that they just couldn't explain. The trunk of the car had shiny spots where they had heard those buzzing sounds, and those spots caused a compass needle to rotate, uh, meaning that there was a magnetic field around those spots. We've seen that in other cases, in cases that MUFON has investigated. Also, Betty's best dress that she was wearing was torn in several places. There was a two-inch tear in the stitching at the top of the zipper, a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric. The hem was torn down on one side. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. She could think of no explanation for how that could have happened. Also, uh, Barney's best dress shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to purchase new shoes. And uh, he wore the ones he had been wearing uh, that were scraped for gardening. Unfortunately, we no longer have those, but we do have Betty's dress and it's undergone scientific analysis. Their watches that they had been wearing no longer worked and never worked again. The binocular strap was broken. There was a lot of perplexing evidence, plus their memories. They sat down and they drew sketches of what they remembered seeing. They took long showers uh, because they'd been a, uh, afraid they'd been exposed to radiation. Um, so they took measures to protect themselves. They left the suitcases and the food that they'd been carrying out on their porch, and they ended up throwing all of the food away. That, in a nutshell, is what happened.
1: It's really incredible because... Like you said, there is a lot of evidence in this particular case, and I found it very interesting that it seemed Betty came to terms with the experience, whereas uh, Barney wrestled with it quite a bit. Is that correct?
2: That is correct, and I think that part of the problem is that Barney was convinced that extraterrestrials couldn't be visiting us from some other planet or star system within our galaxy. And he also was the one who had conscious, continuous recall of observing those non-human entities when he walked out into that field and looked up into that craft through his binoculars. And he is the one who was greatly frightened by what he saw and had the impression that they were going to capture him. Betty was seated in the car, the interior light was on so she couldn't see the craft when Barney was standing in the field. And so he had much more uh, of a threat to him, the conscious recall of what he observed. And Betty simply didn't have that. She was curious about UFOs after that and went to the Portsmouth Public Library took out the first book she had ever read on UFOs. And there was an address in the book for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And she wrote to NICAP and wrote a letter describing what they had seen, the erratic motion of this craft. And she also wrote about how frightened Barney was, how he appeared to have uh, developed a mental block for some of this. And also that he had observed figures on the craft who were dressed in black shiny uniforms.
1: Another aspect of this that I find fascinating was the uh, tape of the uh, hypnosis session with uh, Barney. And honestly, for anybody that may doubt that Betty and Barney Hill experienced something otherworldly, I would encourage them to listen to that tape because it really blew my mind. I listened to it for the first time in a long time um, yesterday. And one of the things that stood out to me and that I wanted to ask you about is that, as you said, uh, Barney was a pretty smart guy. Under hypnosis, you can hear his internal monologue, I guess, as things were uh, unfolding. And you can hear him struggle trying to find a logical explanation, saying that he wished that he could hear a jet engine or something that would Tell him that this was not otherworldly. And one of the quotes that really struck me is when he says, "If there is a God, give me strength." Um, yes. I know that he was. Well, both Betty and Barney were church-going folk. Um, yes. How did they handle this? This crisis was this. Did this put their faith into question? And when you speak to other experiencers that um, maybe had a religious background. Do you find that this is a major source of conflict in internalizing the experience, if you will?
2: It did not have an effect on Betty's and Barney's religious beliefs. They were churchgoers. They were members of the Unitarian Church. They continued uh, in their fellowship with the Unitarian Church and were envoys to the United Nations through their church. So they were very active, active in the couples' club. They went to church on Sunday. So. This did not impact their religious beliefs, but I believe that this experience, well I know that this experience, according to my research, tends to make people more spiritual. So they can have their religious beliefs, but they also develop a kind of spirituality and also a different perspective of themselves and who they are, not as uh, no longer as citizens of uh, New Hampshire or people who are nationalistic, but people who are citizens of the world and and that's the way they began to view themselves.
1: Wow, it's almost what you hear astronauts express when they come back to Earth after being in orbit for a while that they have like this you know more like we're we're a whole human family, if you will. And that, that is really interesting. I've spoken to people that say that, for example, aliens are not to be trusted. Some will say that they're demonic entities, et cetera, et cetera, based around a very uh, Christian-centric view. How would you explain this phenomenon to somebody that maybe has those prejudices, if there is even a way to do that?
2: I have studied and All aspects of this interviewed individuals who are having all sorts of different experiences along the spectrum from what you might consider demonic uh, all the way to what you might consider angelic. So uh, I think that because of the interdimensional nature of all of this and because uh, there are certain paranormal uh, aspects to this as well. Uh, It's difficult for a lot of people to understand. I have uh, a team of 20 of us at MUFON, and 18 of those individuals interview experiencers on a day-to-day basis, people who come to MUFON and ask to speak to a member of the team. And so we've collected a great deal of information and evidence. I've probably personally interviewed well over a 1,000 experiencers over the past 30 years, and there are all sorts of experiences that people are having, and uh, unfortunately, there are those who seem to be psychologically stable, who sort of have their minds abducted, in a sense, where every time they close their eyes at night, they are in some kind of alien realm with these highly negative entities. There are people who are uh, being raped by these highly negative entities. There are people who are being taunted, but that's a small percentage. That's about 10% according to my statistics. We have the, the greater spectrum of individuals who are experiencers who are not having what you would call a classic abduction. But we have those who are continuing to have classic abductions. As part of the study that I did with Dr. Don Derry, we were able to identify those who have UFO abduction syndrome. And they had uh, an array of characteristics that were highly statistically significant. And I'm going to be talking about this at MUFON Symposium. We're going to reveal all of that information. So I hope that if people cannot go there, they would be able to go to MUFON, and there is a way that they will be able to live stream the information and also, there will be DVDs for sale at Mufan's website after that. So, there are a number of different ways to be able to obtain this information. Plus, I wrote a 50-page paper on it that Mufan is going to sell in their proceedings. But uh, it's fascinating information. And we move on. We find people who have developed the ability to heal, people who have been healed, and uh, people who are having... Highly positive experiences. But the message uh, for those who have both positive and negative, and those who have positive experiences, eliminate that 10% with a very negative experience. The overall group uh, is receiving messages. And we left an open-ended questions uh, both on free study and on MUFON study. And that what we have found across the board is that people are being informed that these non-humans are here, they've been here for a long time, they have assisted in our development, they are concerned because our scientific technological development has outweighed our spiritual development, And they feel that we need to develop spiritually or we are at risk for destroying ourselves and and our planet through nuclear warfare or through an environmental disaster. Those are the two strongest messages that I'm hearing.
0: And what do you think their um, intention is, at least of some of these um, extraterrestrial beings? um, And also, what specifically did Barney and Betty encounter once they entered the craft?
2: Yes, well, we didn't know at that time that people were being abducted, even though uh, I have interviewed many people who had been abducted in that time frame and whose uh, parents had been abducted dating all the way back into the 1940s. So... Betty and Barney were terrified. Betty had never been so frightened in her entire life when they found themselves on a a new road. It was a dirt road, and there were tall trees all around, and there were figures standing in the road. And this is where they saw that fiery orb on the ground. And the figures started to walk toward them. And Barney turned to Betty and said, it's the ones I saw in the field. And Betty opened the door to run. She had never been so frightened in her life. And they intercepted her and took her down a path. They took Barney down the path. He could feel only the tops of his shoes, the toes of his shoes, bumping along the rocks. As he was taken to this craft, he felt as if he were floating otherwise, He was taken up a smooth ramp over a bump at the top and into an examining room and placed on a table. Betty was taken down that path, too. She fought for her life. This is how the lining of her dress was torn and the hem was torn down on one side. She gave one of those entities a good kick as she was trying to get away. They took control of her again. Uh, They did something that pacified her, and they took her into an examining room in the craft as well. They were both given the same kinds of physical examinations. These non-human entities were very interested in their hands, their feet, their limbs, their skeletal system overall, and uh, their nervous system. They looked into their eyes, their mouths. They were very interested that uh, Barney had teeth that were removable and Betty did not. They looked into their ears. They took skin scrapings, skin samples, hair samples, a number of samples. They inserted a needle into Betty's navel that was so frightening that, and so painful that Dr. Benjamin Simon had to end the session early. And uh, she recovered after that and began to trust this one that she called the leader. We now call him the escort, and he's the one who can uh, telepathically communicate with the human being and comfort that person. Uh, Throughout a person's lifetime, they will have multiple contact with that individual who takes away their pain and comforts them. So uh, Betty was left in the examining room with him while the doctor or the one she called the, the uh, examiner went into the room with Barney. He did all of the things that I described except for the needle and the navel. They took a sperm sample from Barney. And when Betty was left alone with the one that she called the leader, Uh, she said to him, I know you're not from around here, where are you from? And he produced this sort of three-dimensional map that was uh, said at times it was almost like looking out of a window. There were stars of different sizes and colors on this map. And uh, Dr. Simon, under hypnosis, gave her the post-hypnotic suggestion that if she could remember that map, that she should draw it. She did go home, and over the next couple of weeks, she completed it and took it back to his office. It was published for the first time in the first book that it was ever written on their case, and uh, a brilliant woman from Ohio, Marjorie Fish, was able to finally, after several years, identify the star's on that map. The earth was, or the, the sun, I should say, was on the map. And also there were 15 other stars. And two of those stars that Marjorie Fish believed were the base stars were Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2. So Betty was shown and given the understanding that some of the this map showed some trade routes, regular routes. There were several lines between zeta reticuli one and two. There was more than one line going up to the sun, and then there were some lines that were just dotted lines that he explained were just expeditions. He was also shown uh, a book, and it was more like a tablet. I asked her to describe it to me during my investigation of the case, and I asked her to sketch some of the symbols that she saw. Uh, Those symbols appeared for the first time in my book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience with Stanton Friedman. And Dr. Don Derry, with whom I just did this study, was doing a study on alien symbols. He had actually done a study in 2004. My book was published in 2007. So, he uh, had done a study of Bud Hopkins... Alien symbols that his experiencers had sketched under hypnosis that he kept in a file cabinet, and there was another doctor, Dr. Stuart Appel, from the State University of New York at Brockport, who also took part in this study, as well as Tamara LaGrandure, who was a graduate student at McGill University, where uh, Dr. Don Derry worked in the psychology department. They did a fascinating study where they had uh, two control groups. One were were graduate students who just from their imagination sketched what they thought alien symbols might look like. Uh, There was also another group of graduate students who were hypnotized. And given the suggestion that they went on to an alien craft and they saw symbols on the craft, and they were to sketch the symbols. And then, of course, we had that third group who were Bud Hopkins' experiencers. All of those symbols from the three groups were uh, photocopied onto identical paper, and they were all given to Dr. graduate graduates. and those students did an analysis and what they discovered in the end is that Bud Hopkins' experiencers' symbols were very, very much alike, but very different from the symbols both groups of graduate students had sketched. And in the end, the researchers uh, stated that the similarity of the symbols among those experiences first indicated that alien abduction might be real. So that was a major study. But then Dr. Donderry saw Betty's symbols and decided to compare those to the symbols of the graduate students and to Bud's abductees and discovered that Betty's symbols were very, very similar to the ones uh, that Bud Hopkins' abductees had sketched although there was no way that they could have shared information.
1: That really blows my mind. Speaking of studies, even just this last uh, week, I think I read another um, article that was published. Uh, There are attempts to try to explain phenomena like this. And for a while now, it seems that a lot of people in the scientific community like to attribute these experiences to things like night terrors. However, if these were merely night terrors, uh, we wouldn't have these cases where people actually have evidence of something happening, like in the case of Betty and Barney Hill. So we can't just say that these are night terrors that people are having on a nightly basis.
2: Yes, that's that's very true. And uh, sleep paralysis has been offered up by uh, skeptics in order to explain all the alien abductions or alien contact. Uh, We have the case of Betty and Barney. We have Travis Walton's case. We have uh, three women from Kentucky. We have uh, the Allagash abduction people. We have Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, their abduction. We have many, many abductions where people were driving their cars or they were outside fishing or hiking. We have um cases where there are radar reports of the of craft being seen on military radar, such as in Betty's and Barney's case, where it was seen on two at two radar stations, one at Pease Air Force Base and one at the North Concord Vermont radar station. Uh, the Air Force tried to cover it up, but later there was a study done by two officers uh, from the Air Force at Maxwell Air Force Base. In graduate work they did, they did a study titled Should Project Blue Book Be Reopened? And one of the cases that they studied uh, extensively was the Hill case. And they made the statement that those uh, trackings on the radar were bona fide objects, uh, aerial phenomena. It was not birds. It was not weather phenomena. uh, It was not ground clutter. There was something really there. And they could not understand why the Air Force insisted upon ignoring and debunking this case. But they also mentioned that when it went public, and I need to say it was as the result of a violation of confidentiality, but when it did go public, the Pentagon had so much interest in it that the Hill's file was sent from Wright-Patterson to the Pentagon. There is a lot of evidence of wow. people who can take—I asked two questions on MUFON's or survey that I want to discuss And one of those was, I asked all experiencers who took part in this, 516 good surveys that we were able to keep. I asked them if they had uh, been paralyzed and only able to move their eyes and had observed non-human entities. And uh, a very high percentage of them said, yes, of course, this is an indication of sleep paralysis, The next question I asked is, uh, have you been awake and moving around and observed non-human entities and then became paralyzed? And there was a significant percentage of individuals who said that this had occurred. And what was very interesting is those two were identified as having UFO abduction syndrome, uh, nearly all of those had that conscious recall of having these non human entities in their home, of being able to move and then becoming paralyzed.
0: That
1: is really interesting. We're going to be heading to the top of the hour break here in just a few minutes but I wanted to ask you one question before we go to break and one of the things that I find interesting is that in a lot of cases where people have had experiences with entities possibly from another planet or another dimension if they are wearing a watch it seems like the watch the watches will stop working and I've always wondered if This is on purpose. You know, a lot of times these experiencers come back with uh, no memory of what happened and perhaps just to kind of keep the confusion going a little bit longer. Maybe they mess with the watch. Or is it like a sign or or a symptom of going into another dimension or or having a time slip or something like that? Can you tell me anything about about that?
2: Well, in the old wind-up watches, there was a, a, a strong magnetic field that I believe uh, caused those watches to stop and never to run again. Uh, With the newer digital watches, I'm not so certain how they are impacted, and that's something that a lot of people have been reporting. But uh, I do know that there is a very strong electromagnetic field around these non-human entities' bodies and also around the craft. So... It could be that the electromagnetic field is having an impact. I hadn't thought about slipping into another dimension, but uh, apparently they do slip into another dimension through an interdimensional portal. Mm-hmm. So that, that could possibly uh, have something to do with it as well, as you stated. This
1: is all fascinating stuff. Would it be okay for you to hang on the line just for a few minutes while we play a couple of songs and run some station IDs and we can then come back and continue our conversation?
2: I'd be happy to.
1: Awesome, thank you so much, Kathleen. And uh, don't go away, guys. Uh, We're gonna be right back in just a few minutes to continue talking about this strange phenomena, these interactions with beings, Maybe from another dimension, maybe from another planet. And the Betty and Barney Hill case is definitely one of the standout cases in this field. And uh, we're just going to take a quick break. Uh, We're going to go out with a song. Man, I actually love this song. You know, I've always had a a bit of an overactive imagination when it comes to certain things. And uh, I remember listening to this song when I was a kid and just all this imagery uh, popping into my head. So... We're gonna enjoy a little bit of America. That's the name of the band, and the song is called "A Horse with No Name." This is West of the Rockies on the Independent FM. We're gonna be right back with our guest, Kathleen Martin. Enjoy.
2: West of the Rockies
1: with Frank. (laughs)
0: Open, open,
1: open your, your, your mind. And we're back to the second hour West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we're having just a fascinating time here with our guest tonight, uh, Kathleen Martin. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. And uh, check out the website, WOTRradio.com, where you will find this interview along with a bunch of other great interviews on uh, this topic and other equally fringe and, and thought provoking topics as well. As always, I am joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uwe on Twitter, and you can find her here every Thursday night, hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors, Music, Fun Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more. Oh, Don't forget to subscribe. I always forget the YouTube sometimes. Don't forget to subscribe (laughs) on YouTube uh, to stay up to date with all our latest interviews. We just posted a video interview with uh, Ryan Gable of the show The Secret Teachings, where we take a look at the famous work by Manly P. Hall, uh, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, and talk about some other crazy stuff. Definitely uh, check that out. Quick, some back announcing. You just heard Elena Miles, I'm sorry, Miles, Uh, With Black Velvet, great song. Uh, Before that, we heard the band America with horse with no name. And uh, what's interesting is that even though the band is called America, they're actually a British American band. Turns out that all three members met in London while their fathers who were U.S. Air Force personnel were stationed out there. Uh, and they decided to uh, to get a band together. And the uh, writer of the song, Dewey Bunnell, who passed away in 2011, if I remember correctly, uh, wrote this song about his uh, childhood travels through the Arizona and New Mexico desert when they were living out there near the uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. So there's some interesting factoids for everyone. I hope everybody enjoyed those songs. I know I did. I'm going to bring back into our conversation Kathleen Martin, and I'm going to Ask her to uh, share with us, uh, where can people find her online, Twitter, website, Facebook? And uh, Kathleen, where will you be speaking at next?
2: Okay, well, first of all, let me give you my social media name. It's just Kathleen Marden. When I go to social media, it's generally uh, Facebook that I go to. But I also have a website where I keep all of my important information. It's Kathleen with a K hyphen or dash Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. You'll see my upcoming events, lectures, and you can purchase autographed copies of my books there. There are also a lot of free articles that you can read. So go there if you're interested in seeing if I'm going to be speaking near you. But uh, I'm going to be, this coming week, I'm leaving on Wednesday, actually, for the Roswell UFO Festival. And I'll be doing two presentations there and have a vendor table at the museum. And my co-author on three books, Stanton Friedman, will be there with me. This is a big event for Stanton because he'll be 84 years old this month, and he is going to be retiring. So this is going to be a big retirement party for wow. him. It should be a lot of fun. And then later on this month, on uh, the 27th, 28th, and 29th of July, I will be speaking at the MUFON International Symposium in Cherry Hills, New Jersey. You can go to MUFON, M-U-F-O-N, dot com, and click on the link for the symposium. It's also on my website under my events, a clickable link. And this is very exciting to me uh, because there are people that I want to hear and I want to meet, such as Luis Elizondo, who was the Pentagon chief for the investigation of UFOs. And I'm sure everybody's heard about the Tic Tac UFO and how credible this sighting is. He is going to be speaking live about that. He's our keynote speaker on Friday evening. We have two sessions on Friday during the day that are absolutely free to the public where you can hear Dr. Lin Kitai talk about the Phoenix Lights and Travis Walton talk about his experience. Travis will also be speaking at the symposium. And I'm very excited, too. Dr. John Brandenburg is going to be one of our speakers. And he is the scientist who worked for NASA and, with NASA funding, uh, did research and investigation on the face of Mars and discovered the evidence, the signature, for two thermonuclear explosions on Mars that are no place else in our solar system. So that should be very interesting. Nick Pope will be there, originally from Great Britain, and worked with the British uh, Investigation Group on UFOs for the government. We also have Randolph Nickerson, who is the investigator now and filmmaker of a wonderful documentary on the aerial school event in Zimbabwe in oh, wow. 1994. Dr. John Mack originally was one of the U.S. investigators on that. And Randy Nickerson is going to have Selma Siddick with him. She was one of the school children who had these non-human entities communicate with her when they came off this craft, and some of these children have had continuing events with these non-human entities. I don't know if she's one of them or not, but I'm dying to find out. So we have a very good lineup of speakers. There are many more, and you will be able to read all about them at n.com MUFON, M-U-F-O-N, uh, if you are an experiencer and you're interested in attending a workshop, I will be hosting two workshops on Saturday morning and Sunday morning. So uh, there are lots of things to do, side trips and a lot of education.
1: Definitely a lot of, a lot of fun for people to check out. Visit uh, Kathleen's website. And uh, if you're going to be close to where these events are happening, I definitely urge you to go. I would if I was there. Um, Kathleen, real quick, you mentioned uh, Stanton Friedman, and he has done some amazing work. I mean, I think a lot of us have seen uh, his his documentary, UFOs Are Real. And uh, he has been a constant voice in this movement uh, for many, many years. And as you mentioned, he's getting ready to retire. I mean, it's crazy. I grew up watching him on TV back in Um, There was a show called Sightings, and I quite remember he was one of the prominent figures there. When did you first connect with Stanton Friedman, and how did you guys complement each other's work?
2: Well, I met Stanton many, many years ago. I've known him for at least 30 years. I met him, I believe, initially through my Aunt Betty. I could be incorrect on that. He and I were trying to figure out when we first met. We only know we've known each other for a very long period of time. But uh, when Betty died, I had been investigating her case for many, many years. She passed away from lung cancer in 2004. And I had, uh, by 2005, uh, written most of this book captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. But there was one section that was missing, and that was the investigation of the star map. Now, Stanton was asked by um, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization uh, to contact Marjorie Fish, who was the woman who did the uh, investigation of Betty's star map. He was asked to authenticate the star map uh, by finding scientists who could vet Marjorie's work, and also to vet Marjorie himself to see what kind of person she was. He was highly impressed with Marjorie. She said that He said that she could communicate much better with scientists than she could with the general public. Uh, she was a genius, a member of Mensa, And uh, so he did find scientists who were willing to vet Marjorie's work. It also went through a computer analysis at Ohio State University. And all of these analyses said that her work was accurate. So this was really important uh, because there were no computers back in those days that were accessible to Marjorie. Uh, She had to go to the university. She had to sit in the library of the astronomy department and uh, hand copy all of the distance data from the catalogs. She then took that distance data home uh, with all of the types of stars that uh, were listed and she used monofilament line and beads of different sizes and colors in a frame uh, to construct these 23 models that she made looking for the star system that, that Betty had spoken about. And she, still she didn't have a match in 1972. Uh, there was uh, Then that she was able to get some um, updated information, three stars on Betty's map had not been discovered, but they were discovered then. Some of the distance data changed, and so she was able to put all of this together, rearrange some of these stars, and then she had a match for Betty's drawing. And Marjorie thought that she would have many matches initially, but in the end, she had only this one. And there were very special properties about this too because all of the stars on Betty's map that were connected by lines were believed to be sun-like stars, although only 5% of the stars in that section of our galactic neighborhood were sun-like stars. The chance of this happening uh, was estimated to be anywhere from 1 in a 1,000 to 1 in 10,000, uh, just by chance. So this was really remarkable. There were a lot of scientists who were interested in this work and then there were a few others who were debunkers who uh, believed that Betty could have thrown marbles into the air and somebody could have found the star system nobody's attempted that though
1: <laughs> that's pretty incredible when Betty and Barney were up in the UFO they were subject to medical tests essentially did they you know have any ideas why or do you have any ideas why Would extraterrestrials or or these entities be taking these uh, or conducting these seemingly medical tests on human beings? I know other researchers have speculated that there is some type of uh, breeding program or an alien-human hybrid program going on. Is this what you found through your research as well?
2: Well, Betty and Barney thought that they uh, had taken them and the medical interest in them was to determine the difference between human bodies and their bodies. I think that Betty and Barney were incorrect because it's pretty obvious that they were set up to do these medical examinations on humans, and it appears that they had done them in the past. And it, uh, it does appear that a certain percentage of experiencers and abductees are uh, taking part, uh, often unwillingly, in these genetic studies. These children or fetuses are being uh, grown in artificial wombs on craft, they uh, come to the point where they can be taken out of these tanks and uh, be raised somewhere, I can't imagine Raising them on one of the little models, but probably a, a huge space station or maybe on another planet. Uh, and uh, there's been a little bit of speculation that uh, their concern about the possibility that if we continue on the path we're on, we could destroy this planet. Uh, they would have samples of, of human DNA. It's also apparent that they're attempting to upgrade humans. And there are children being born along the family lines of these abductees. And many of these children have very special characteristics. They're extremely uh, intelligent. They tend to be empathic. Uh, They tend to be a little psychic. They tend to be very good at everything they do, well-adjusted. Some of them can heal. Some of them are telekinetic. A lot of them have some very special gifts. And it would make sense to me that they would want to, if they're doing this genetic alteration, they would want to have the human parents uh, give birth to and raise these children in a human environment. Because you have to be raised in a human environment in order to be human. If you were raised outside of a human environment, uh, you would be like the individuals who have raised you, or you could be feral uh, and, and never be able to adjust to life on this planet. So, I don't know the full purpose of everything that is going on, but that is some of my speculation based upon the evidence I've received from statements from well over a thousand experiences. So Kathleen, have you
0: ever felt that anyone in your family, including maybe yourself has been, um, some sort of hybrid potentially because what Betty and Barney experienced is definitely quite, um, personal. I mean, uh, they were probed and injected and had fluids taken from them. I mean, that, that's what it sounds like.
2: Well, I always wonder if I might have some cousins out there that I haven't met. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> so, and, and I'd love to know your, your theory on that. Yes, well, I really don't know. It's possible. Uh, my mother and I both had uh, memory of being on a craft when I was 17 years old when Betty was conducting experiments with uh, a team of scientists attempting to bring a craft in to land on my grandparents' farm. Uh, there were two witnesses to the craft coming in for a landing There was physical trace evidence on the ground. This was within 250 feet of my childhood home. And my mother and I both had these memories, uh, very frightening memories. And so, uh, who knows? It isn't something that I care to go into in, at any length, but it did happen. It was investigated back then, and uh, we just didn't speak about it. So who knows what's going on? Everyone in my family seems completely normal and human, uh, although they are intelligent, but I think my family is intelligent as well. Something else I need to say is that experiencers and abductees develop special characteristics uh, as a result of their experience. They all feel that they've had an intellectual upgrade, uh, or I shouldn't say all, a statistically significant percentage feel that they have had an intellectual upgrade. They feel that they have become more uh, psychic or intuitive, They feel that they uh, are empathic. They can feel other people's feelings. Sometimes they can feel if people are ill. Uh, They have difficulty being in a large crowd, especially if it's an angry crowd or a troubled crowd, uh, because they feel those emotions coming from people as if they were their own. And, And that's a special characteristic that many, many experiencers have. So, not only are children born with this, but the experiencer himself or herself develops this as a result of their own experiences on the craft. Wow. Very interesting. And you know, I, I, sorry, I didn't go on to answer the rest of your question about Stanton Friedman. I only talked about his part and Captured, that he had written uh, two chapters, and he vetted my work for accuracy. Right. But we found that we enjoyed working together. So we ended up writing Science Was Wrong, and then we wrote uh, Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers, which is based upon years of archival research that both of us have done. A lot of it came from the American Philosophical Society, in Philadelphia, we made three trips there and uh, took home uh, at least a 1,000 pages worth of documents. That's where Dr. Edward Condon had files. Uh, Philip Klass, the debunker, who was the uh, mainstream media's go-to guy, who uh, liked mainstream media and the American public for many, many years. And that's where Dr. Donald Menzel, a big debunker, uh, had some of his correspondence files as well, and he was on the board of directors of the American Philosophical Society. So uh, we're very proud of that book.
1: And uh, going yes. back to the uh, these experiences that that people are having, much like uh, Betty and Barney Hill, Betty and Barney uh, under hypnosis, they describe the entities that they came in contact with and what. surprising is that not all of them look the same and it seems like a lot of people when they are taken aboard these ships or they're taken out of their rooms and to another dimension or what have you they see not just one type of being but different types what can you tell me about that does that mean that there is some type of hierarchy going on are these biological entities, are these spiritual entities, or could they be artificial entities that these beings have created?
2: Well, Betty and Barney saw two types of entities on the craft, and they kept one of those types secret. Uh, they saw what might have been a, a race of greys, but they weren't those typical skinny, skinny little grey entities that are like robots. Uh, They did seem uh, to be sentient beings, and the, the taller ones, who were about five feet tall, were the ones who had the important roles on the craft as being the translators, the communicators, the doctors. There were also shorter ones who were about three and a half to four feet tall. They had larger heads in proportion to their bodies, and they were not as nice as the taller ones. They were frightened, Betty. And they were more like the police officers or the security guards, on the craft. They were the ones who took that book away from Betty when she wanted to take it off the craft. Her escort told her that she could keep that book. So uh, she was very upset when they took that away from her. We know today that they're the ones who tend to, uh, if people need to be undressed, they will undress them. They will be the ones who come to get people. They will line the walls of the, the craft hallway and move only when spoken to. I wrote a lot about this in my book, The Alien Abduction Files with uh, Denise Stoner. And that is uh, six cases that I have investigated, uh, highly significant cases. And there's a lot of information in there about different types of entities. Denise, for example, is a long-time experiencer, generational experiencer, Dating back to uh, probably the time she was born, her mother and father uh, had a craft coming toward their home in Connecticut. And not that far from Tom Reed's family. And uh, they thought that this was a plane that was on course to make a direct hit to their house. So they were very concerned, looking out the window at this craft. The next thing they knew, they were waking up. And it was morning. And uh, you just don't do that if you think that a plane is about to strike your house. Uh, Denise and her family have been taken by two groups. One is insectoid-type, praying mantis-type beings. And they were the ones who were the physicians on the craft. And then greys. And then two types of greys. The taller gray, like Betty and Barney saw... And the shorter gray, who may not be sentient beings. They might be biomechanical or, or cyborg. Wow. That's really interesting because someone in the chat did
0: actually, um, it was Space Cow who just asked um, about two, three minutes ago, um, what is it about the grays? How do, um, not the grays, yeah. the, the praying mantis type of aliens, how do they fit into this whole scenario, and if you could enlighten the chat about that, that would be great.
2: Well, some people have speculated that the praying mantis types are only the the older and, and more mature uh, greys, and some people actually mix up praying mantis types with tall greys who are five and a half to six feet tall. So. You know, if you look at them closely, and I've never seen one, but uh, the way Denise described it is that their skin was modeled, that it was kind of a tan or uh, yellowish color with brown modeling uh, eyes that were vertical on the face, very large vertical eyes, and uh, very intense, communicated telepathically, but the physicians, the doctors. In another case that I wrote in the book, the the case of the Reed family, Tom and Matthew Reed, his mother and his grandmother were all taken. Uh, They first lived in uh, Western Massachusetts and then moved to Connecticut to try to get away from this. And it, of course, followed them. Uh, Tom's mother uh, was taken, we believe, for the first time from the Allagash from a cabin they had up there when she was 16 years old. And uh, when Tom, I believe he was nine years old, they were returning from a horse show. uh, And the entire family, Tom, his younger brother, his mother, and his grandmother were taken on board what looked like a, a shopping center hanging over these trees. It was rectangular in shape. And they were taken on to this craft. Uh, where they were examined by these insectoid-type beings.
1: In in recent years, the use of uh, psychedelics has become uh, quite popular once again. And people like Dr. Rick Strassman's research into dimethyltryptamine, commonly known as DMT, and Graham Hancock, who's done uh, a lot of research into altered states, When I read these books and the accounts of of people that have gone through this uh, oftentimes ritual, they claim to have encounters with entities that by all accounts fit the bill of uh, of one of these beings as far as being an insectoid shape or like this gray alien type of figure. What do you make of that? Have you looked into that yourself and... uh, are, are we dealing with the same entities here, just the different ways of coming in contact with them?
2: I'm familiar, I've never tried it, but I'm familiar with uh, individuals uh, who are, have used ayahuasca under the guidance of a shaman. And uh, they do seem to communicate with these non-human entities. And, you know, all of these entities appear... To be interdimensional. It appears that there are some entities who are simply interdimensional and live right here on our planet or nearby. We simply do not see them, except for if there is a, a breach in the fabric between our dimensions, and you know, that bubble or whatever you want to call it. Uh, there are also um, the interdimensionals who are probably coming here from other planets who might use interdimensional technology to open these portals uh, into experiencers' homes, for example, to take them through solid surfaces. I don't know if they are all extraterrestrials, the one, these people who are using ayahuasca or mind-altering drugs. I don't know, and it's not something I want to try. To, I'm an experimenter, but that's not something I'm going <laughs> to experiment with.
1: Right, of course, understandable. I guess along the same lines, I've talked to many people who claim this through meditation. They can also come into contact with these beings. Is this something that you have found becoming more and more common in your research as the years go on?
2: Yes, absolutely. People can learn uh, to protect themselves, to meditate, deep meditators, uh, dating all the way back into the 1950s, uh, have been able to establish contact with these non-human entities who are positive, who uh, give them guidance, who give them information. Uh, in in Free's new book uh, that is just going to be released in September, Beyond UFOs, I have a, a chapter where I speak about Frances Swan, who is a woman from uh, Maine, and in 1954, uh, she started meditating after she read a book, and she started communicating, receiving sort of downloads of information uh, day after day from these non-human entities who, who claimed that they were hovering way up in the sky maybe around our planet, and uh, they were here to guide us. It was a lot of the same kind of thing that you heard from people like uh, George Adamski. The thing about Frances Swan was that she worked quietly with the U.S. government and with the Canadian government, and uh, not too many people knew uh, about her back then. She gave her information to Admiral Herbert Knowles, who lived in her neighborhood, and he ended up thinking that it was so important scientifically and way beyond her level of scientific knowledge that he sent that information to Washington. He wrote a letter to Dwight Eisenhower, it went to the Office of Naval Research, it went to the Air Force, Uh, it went to the CIA, and it brought some top government officials up to Herbert Knoll's house. And they wanted to learn how to communicate the way that Francis Swan did. And uh, it's a very interesting story. Uh, Wilbert Smith from the Canadian government was also involved in this. He was in charge of Project Magnet and Project Second Story. And as part of Project Second Story, he was looking for scientific evidence that any of these messages might be real. And he was actually able to find scientific evidence that some of the messages were true. And today, we have people who are meditating deeply, meditation groups, who are connecting to these interdimensional beings. When they come nearby, uh, they feel this very strong uh, electrical tingling sensation through their bodies, if the, these entities are putting out a strong field. So, uh, very interesting.
1: Let me ask you about hypnosis, because I feel that over the years, uh, experts seem to go back and forth, researchers seem to go back and forth, whether it's uh, It's a useful tool, a reliable tool, or it's susceptible to flaws, you know, implanted memories or false memories. They have a term kind of like that. Uh, Is hypnosis still commonly used when dealing with experiencers that they want to remember what they uh, underwent? And is it a reliable method?
2: Well, we have changed the way we do things. Back in the late 80s and, and early 1990s, there was a lot of controversy over the use of hypnosis. Um, There were people who uh, were untrained, who were using hypnosis, where they just picked it up. They didn't know a lot about it and they didn't know a lot about human psychology, but they were sort of experimenting on people thinking that they were going to get to the truth about what was happening. Now, people were accused of leading witnesses uh, to tell a certain story. I was involved back in the 1990s. I did a major study on all of the academic studies that I could find on hypnosis. And then I underwent training myself because I wanted to complete the the other part of that constellation so that I'd know everything I could about hypnosis. Hypnosis can be used very effectively If you're using it for an investigation uh, of an experience and there is more than one witness and they all have amnesia for this event and they're all hypnotized separately with amnesia reinstated, um, then you can get to the truth. Um, But we don't do that very often anymore. So, The main thing that it's used for today is not as part of MUFON's investigations, for example, but it's to help experiencers themselves to come to some kind of understanding of what happened to them on the craft Uh, and Dolores Cannon. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, she's deceased now, but she developed a method of hypnosis, it's called quantum healing hypnosis, and for people who have experienced trauma, they can uh, go to someone who is trained in Dolores Cannon's quantum healing method, and it's been very effective with people. We have a uh, clinical psychologist on our team at MUFON, who does uh, use hypnosis, not the, the type that Dolores Cannon does. She, she uses the type that mental health practitioners use. And so the type that Dr. Simon used was medical hypnosis, uh, he was a psychiatrist, and the type that uh, these other mental health practitioners use, who are licensed psychologists.
1: Speaking of Dr. Simon, I found interesting that apparently he believed that uh, what Betty and Barney Hill went through was nothing more than basically a hallucination. I, I may be paraphrasing him poorly and I apologize, but he basically didn't think that what they claimed happened really did happen. Did he ever have a change of mind considering that as the case grew more popular, there seemed to be more evidence to back up Betty and Barney's claims?
2: Walter Webb, who was the original NICAP investigator, told me that he gave Betty's and Barney's file to Dr. Simon, and Dr. Simon was pretty dismissive of that. He was willing to believe that Betty and Barney had a sighting. Their statements meshed 100%, both in their conscious recall and under hypnosis for that sighting, and so he was uh, very willing to believe that it seemed, but he was attempting to convince Betty and Barney that Betty had had a series of five dreams, and that she was only restating her dreams under hypnosis, and that Barney had somehow, even though he hadn't read her dreams or heard all of her dreams, he had somehow picked up on this, and he had simply confabulated this abduction experience under hypnosis. That was one of the major uh, things that I wanted to investigate for my book Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. I lined up Betty's and Barney's statements under hypnosis for their entire trip and compared their descriptive details, compared the way that they spoke. Uh, Betty was very descriptive. She used many, many words Barney, not so many and not as descriptive. Mm. So that, that applied for their time on the craft and also applied for Betty's, describing much more than Barney did during that time on the craft. But I did my comparative analysis, indicated that some of their statements that meshed entirely were not in Betty's dreams. And some of the information in Betty's dreams was contradicted by Betty's and Barney's separate statements under hypnosis. So it's all in the book, but it led right. me to believe that they had a real experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I, I think that this is maybe
0: quite a big question, but when it comes to disclosure regarding especially the U.S., um, a lot, you know, of what the U.S. citizens have experienced in the past years. What's the best way to go around this closure? Do you think it's a good thing to let people know what's happening? Or do you think that actually the government is doing us a favor by kind of like keeping it on a down low
2: just because it's too scary? Well, I think the government is taking a look at this again And uh, judging human behavior based upon the information that uh, was released as a result of a Freedom of Information Act, that uh, request that Luis Elizondo made. Even though he was the Pentagon's chief for the study of UFOs, uh, he had to have this uh, secret information released to the public in order to present it. And with the Academy to the Stars um, of Arts and Science, I, I think that is a huge step forward because we have highly credible government officials, former government officials, of high standing, the mainstream people, and they are saying that this is real and they're showing the evidence of this. And the American public seems to be accepting it just fine. I mean, nobody's jumped off the top of a tall building or off a bridge. Uh, It seems that most people know that this is real.
1: And my last question, I know we've reached the end of the show, but I just want to ask you this uh, for anyone that may be listening and they feel, they think, or they they have memories of having uh, an experience similar to those that we have discussed here tonight. What can they do? Where can they seek help? Uh, Do they reach out to you? Do they reach out to MUFON? What, What would be some of the first steps that someone can take if they find themselves in that position.
2: Well, right there in California is Yvonne Smith from CIRA. So I wanted to mention that first. Also, Barbara Lamb, who is a psychotherapist, family therapist, uh, who lives in California, is having support groups. And Yvonne Smith does. And uh, OPUS, O-P-U-S, is another group who have support group meetings So, you have many resources in California. But if you would like to speak with somebody on MUFON's Experiencer Research Team, then go to MUFON's website at www.mufonmufon.com. Scroll down on the main page to Experiencer Research Team. There's a clickable link there, it takes you to our page. You can see some of the members on the team and read about them. And there's a clickable link up at the top that will take you to the experiencer questionnaire. This is different from the 118 question survey I was talking about earlier. The questionnaire uh, is just true and false. There are only 30 questions. Uh, It's sort of an icebreaker. It has some of the commonalities that experiencers share. Uh, and by filling that out, you will give your contact information, and a member of my team will write to you via email first to try to set up a telephone call or a Skype interview, and uh, they are non-judgmental listeners. They can give you help. They can give you guidance. We do have a list of vetted uh, psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, and we have support groups that we can make referrals for um, in the United States, in Canada, we have some in Australia, we have uh, some in Europe as well, so that we can make referrals to. And uh, of course, you enter into a private contract with these professionals. Uh, that has nothing to do with MUFON. Uh, But we do supply a list of people that we know uh, are credentialed. And so you won't end up with somebody who is just going to practice and might harm you. That is uh,
1: really uh, useful information to to know, definitely. Kathleen, I feel like the time just flew by. Uh, Before you go, can you just remind people one more time about your website and your social media so they can find you online?
2: Oh, I'd love to. Uh, My website is. Kathleen with a K, -K K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N dash Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. I'm also on Facebook uh, and you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. I I don't write anything on Twitter. I go occasionally to LinkedIn, but all of my information is usually on Facebook. And I generally visit Facebook about once a week. But you can go to my website and all of my updated information is there.
1: Very cool. Thank you so much, Kathleen. What can I say? This has been a very informative uh, interview and fascinating at the same time. And we hope that uh, we can have you back again in the future.
0: Yeah, and we hope to meet you at one of
2: the upcoming conferences. Yes, that would be terrific. I'd love to meet you.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Please enjoy the rest of your night. And uh, what can I say? We had a great time speaking with you.
2: I had a great time, too. And thank you for having me on.
1: Thank
0: you so much, Kathleen.
1: (laughs) That was
2: Kathleen
1: Martin. And uh, boy, this was a a great interview. The the Betty and Barney Hill case was, as I said at the top of the show, one of the the most fascinating cases for me growing up. And uh, she being the the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. She was as close to that as anybody can be without having to experience it like Betty and
0: Barney Hill, I feel. Honestly, I admire her passion to continue to tell the story because Betty and Barney aren't around, unfortunately, nowadays, and she is uh, perpetuating the legacy, I guess.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, and an important one at that. Uh, I, I believe there's even a monument where this event took place. And, you know, as I said, it's it's uh, it's been turned into a movie along the lines of Fire in the Sky, which was based on Travis Walton's experience and Communion based on Willie Streiber's experience. Uh,
0: and something we didn't touch on at all, but let's just mention that they were an interracial couple, which... Yeah, nowadays that sounds like okay, trivial. Okay, Certain yeah, extent. okay, yeah. yeah, like okay, cool for you, but back in the day that was not cool for you, right, right. <laughs> like and being an interracial couple, um, having basically being a black and white couple, yeah. that was very controversial. And on top of the controversial, the controversial, I guess, controversiality. Yeah, okay. There we go. Right. I, I
1: guess, I'll go with that. I guess
0: that's a word. Yep. We'll take it. <laughs> Um, on top of that, um, you know, the situation itself was weird to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I I know what you mean. And I, I purposely didn't want to uh, or didn't feel the need to address it because I think that uh, the claim, and this was a very real claim, apparently, that it was because they were an interracial couple that somehow played into this hallucination or what have you that they experienced this but it wasn't real you know i think enough has been said about it you know i think any rational person would agree that their marriage and their ethnicity should have very little of play course. No, no, it, <laughs> ha- it
0: should have nothing to do with it
1: <laughs> right Zero. Uh, like i was gonna say uh <laughs> you can't ignore obviously the the social context of the times when the benny and barney hill abduction happened that's for sure However, I would have to agree, yeah, I wouldn't say that it wasn't real because it was some type of trauma because of the times that they were living in, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fascinating case with plenty of evidence. And I mean, to this day, it still captures the uh, attention of a lot of people. And, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, we can, have uh, oh, early 4th of July firework in the background, if anybody caught <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> yep, and another oh. one. Okay, I better wrap up. I hope it's just fireworks. Otherwise, they're trying to tell me to get off the air in a (laughs) not-so-subtle manner. Anyways, guys, we hope you really enjoyed that. If you miss any part of that interview, don't sweat it. You will find it on our website, WOTR Radio. Like, West of the Rockies, you take the initials at the word radio at the end, WOTRradio.com. You'll find it there. You'll find it on iTunes, and you will find it on YouTube. So don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the notifications of when all this stuff gets posted. That being said, as always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on uh Twitter at WOTRradio.com. Subscribe to the YouTube, youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. Uh, as always, I've been joined by Genevieve Genevieve Uwe on Twitter. You can find her here every Thursday night, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific time, hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors, Music, Fun Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more right here on The Independent FM. Man.
0: Someone just asked, that was an actual shooting, right? And, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm I'm looking at them, I'm like, I don't know, it's Let's L.A. It's, not. It's, yeah. it's it's L.A. You can never I tell.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's always 50-50 <laughs> around here. Uh, <laughs> that being said... Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. And we're gonna go out with, well, Ghost just came out with a new album a few weeks back. Uh, It's a pretty cool album. And this is, I think, my favorite track off of that album. It's called Faith. Enjoy it, guys. This has been West of the Rockies. We'll see you next week. Take care. Till then. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.
2: West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.